वेलकम टू सन टॉक सन टॉक इज अराउंड द टेबल यर टुडे डिस्कस द ऑन्टोलॉजी ऑफ ब्यूटी डेलवन टू एरिया सच इज आर्ट्स पोइट्री लिटरेचर म्यूजिक स्कल्पचर आर्किटेक्चर एंड मोर इन अ सेंस द कॉन्वर्सेशन विल फॉलो द ऑपोजिट ऑफ द फिनमिनल एपिस्टमोलॉजिकल कंसेप्शन ऑफ ब्यूटी लाइज इन द आईज ऑफ द बी होल्डर यू मे हैव कॉन्सेप्ट डिराइव फ्रॉम प्लेटो कान थैगल शोपन हावर मे बी एफ यू ओरिएंटल ट्रेडिशन विच अपराउट and we'll try to delve into possible mathematical foundations which talks of prasad and tajpan and um, see whether design is in a way replacing art in the modern world um we are very pleased to have four sent talkers with us today yaron barzile who is a philosopher um runs new acropolis in bombay azan kambata who is a sculptor and an artist from bombay professor makaran paranjupe um who is I was a professor and a student of literature and a writer, and Professor Dipendra Prasad was a number theorist and mathematician based out of TIFR in Bombay. Thank you so much to all of you for coming here today. It's a pleasure and a privilege for Sin Talk to have you here. Um, Makran, can we set the ball rolling with uh, some kind of a very brief outline of why we find ourselves where we are, what is beauty, um, what have been the different intellectual traditions, and we'll probably just round it up with Yaron um, throwing his words in on the topic. Wonderful! It's great to be here. I just wanted to start off with a somewhat provocative statement, which is that in the ancient or classical Indian tradition, mm-hmm. beauty isn't very important. Yeah, <laughs> the idea of sandarya is not important to traditional Indic thought. What is really important are notions of existence, sat, yeah, consciousness, uh, chit, and ananda, which is of course joy. Right. and beauty sort of comes in by the way of joy of ananda right and it's very interesting to use that word ananda we can go to ananda kumaraswami a very important theoretician yes. thinker of, of the national period of indian um, recent indian history and he actually makes this point that um, when it comes to ananda you can find it even in beauty uh, sorry even in ugliness any aspect of life uh, what would be the best english translation for ananda makaran um well some people translate it as joy others right. as bliss others right. as happiness uh, but i like to see it like the french word jouissance you know the kind yep. of sense of uh, mm. you know exuberance a kind of ecstasy frankly and mm. uh, it's very interesting that the buddhist thought that uh, all phenomenal life was characterized by dukkha yes and the hindus thought it was characterized by ananda <laughs> but they're yeah. both arriving at the same place at a similar point because buddha is saying how to reduce suffering or how to eliminate suffering and the hindus are saying how to be in joy right so basically you know this whole notion of uh, satyam shivam sundaram comes much later and i think it's a post kantian mm-hmm. formulation mm-hmm. 
and oh, so, you think so it comes yeah, back late yeah I, i feel though people sort of push it back i mean mm-hmm. indians always push everything back we think everything began here yeah <laughs> but uh, which may be true but i think i suspect that we were responding to something from europe so mm-hmm. there was a reason why in the late 18th century suddenly beauty becomes important with kant's yes. critique of aesthetic judgment yes but just one little footnote before because i wanted to address your question in the western tradition especially you know in the greek and roman tradition beauty was very important because for plato it was linked to virtue yeah so he was he somehow thought that the beautiful had to be virtuous and that's how even in islam you have the word husna which yeah. is linked to the word ehsan ehsan right. you know right. so it has to do with virtue and the paradox in plato of course is that when you read the republic he's very suspicious of poets he's saying poets should be driven out of the republic because they are very deceptive you see they copy copies ideal forms are copied by carpenters who make tables and other things and then poets copy that yeah so he was so i'm saying plato has a deep ambivalence towards ideas of beauty and then there's a long gap there's longinus important uh, roman uh, yeah. kind of thinker yeah. who talks about the sublime but then kant picks it up and then it becomes a european ob- obsession but was there was there a kernel of that yaron in aristotle himself right after plato um do you see that contradiction in tension between what plato thought and what kant in a way picked up several centuries later eh uh, no i i i but i take it from a different uh, point of view i'm just connected to what you just said and uh, to say that uh, if i follow the platonic way of thinking then beauty has a lot to do with uh, truth and what is right and what is just and what is good uh, in fact maybe it's not also platonic we can take it back maybe to pythagoras yes, or others then. and uh, I don't know if it's possible here to come to conclusion what is right and what is wrong. It's just we just trying yeah. all kind of uh, point of view. Yeah. It's also very interesting to uh, to look at all those uh, ancient uh, schools of art. So if you find uh, if you if you search for the schools of art in the ancient world, you will always find it within the temple. In That's fact, right. it's another form of uh, priesthood. Yes. So it might suggest that the artist, one who uh, deal with truth, sorry, with beauty. um has an important role in the society it's linked to the divine so, in some form and and yes exactly linked to the divine and and in such ways also linked to the truth yeah to goodness etc so yeah. i would say maybe the opposite but yeah that's much, where uh, the, I mean, the famous euthypro dilemma comes in is it good because it's divine or is it divine because it because it's good or this is just a play of words Uh, you asking me uh, i don't know <laughs> to my <laughs> opinion it's uh, they look at it as a different side of the same coin right uh, right and i find it to be more interesting to look at it from that point of view and obviously there's this massive influence supposedly of pythagoras on socrates and many others and um dependra when you do mathematics do you do you think and worry about these things at all or it's, um, it's well i think uh, mathematics somehow is uh, uh maybe it doesn't take into account uh, the beauty as maybe one sees it from one's eyes but i think it is beauty in terms of uh, intellectual arguments right. so somehow so there's an element of process in there 
yeah that there is. is some element of abstraction and the thought and uh, somehow surprise yeah and uh, um, i mean yeah, somehow uh, at least the way i see mathematicians uh, calling something beautiful because maybe it uh, is an argue it's an argument which could be which could have a larger appeal among mathematicians but i think uh, uh, it should be also an argument uh, which should have some element of surprise so right. I, i i think uh, i and how does one find that surprise is it, is it just is it just serendipity is it just it just happens to pop out of there Or of course uh, there's a way of doing it methodically this uh, surprise is uh, what one calls a uh, human brilliance maybe yeah. that you know <laughs> this uh, very simple but beautiful argument was advanced by this very famous man so somehow uh, to come up with uh, sim pull arguments i think needs a much greater insight into working of uh, maybe the logic so i would say that uh, uh, for mathematician beauty is an element of surprise together with uh, maybe a larger applicability which may be not just limited to the situation at hand but something which you see which may have larger applicability right arzan how would you react to this obviously we have heard this angle of divinity we have heard the angle of surprise um at some level while it's not being said there's this concept of intuition kind of buried in here um and when 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 you play with scrap or anything else and you try to is something out are you looking for beauty or you know beauty is there in it to simply take the extraneous parts away i think What's okay uh, going going back to when i started working with scrap yeah i i found the pieces of scrap most beautiful yeah i i, I mean I, i would pick up uh, stuff from scrap yards broken wheels etc etc and and there was some tremendous aesthetic power in them yeah. for me to be attracted to them and pick them up and get to them to the studio and then sort of start making sense from them you know like like a rorschach chart you you pour ink and you try to make sense yeah. of it yeah. i i i would see these various pieces and they would like jump out uh, there was the, i remember there was this most uncanny part which i found in a delco of a fiat in an old car yeah okay <laughs> and i just removed it and it actually had a moving arm and it looked as if it was a dog scratching the back of his ear i still have that and it, it it's it that the images are so vivid so it, it would be like i would find beauty in these pieces everything wouldn't be that simple and then i would connect them to find a complex sort of a, uh, assembled beauty by made up by these small individual parts you know Right. So so that that's what I would do I would go for form and of course not only aesthetics with with everything has to have a meaning in it as well and I think the more powerful the form the more powerful the meaning would come out you know but is it step a leading to step b or there is a point z somewhere there in Oh, oh you yeah. you have to play around with the pieces a lot. No, there is no A B C D. There's there's no particular way that you go around. It's very uh, fluid. It, it's 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 you actually the the pieces play with you you know the right. pieces actually play with you i mean you pick up one a piece a and you see it from here is different you see it from here is different so every 
every angle is there let's say if you're talking of beauty there is of course there's in this position there's a level of beauty here there's b level c level you yeah. judge each piece and then you sort of put it together and you say okay fine this x and y goes together and forms the the sculpture that i want you know but so, how much how much of the human spirit are you able to embody into that so we were speaking about anish kapoor before we started recording um are you able to say what kind of a human being anish kapoor is just by looking at his art or? i i think so yes very much very much i mean yeah. uh, I, I you see his pieces they're all very highly reflective absolutely simple there is no curvy decorations on top they're very minimalistic straight line they interact with the public a lot yeah i mean coming to think of it now that i think he doesn't interact much he's very to himself <laughs> but but the pieces the simplicity of the pieces is very evident in the way he is you know right. i mean you can make out they're silent and they make a statement and that's how he is also you know and and i'm coming to think of my pieces my pieces are playful and that's the way i, I think i am also you know you right. do, uh, i i love it when the observer comes to a piece and and sort of uh, notices something funny he smiles to himself laughs to himself then goes back and he discovers something else and that's that's what i want the viewer to do i want him to experience that piece as a whole you know and makaran when you do poetry or you write some of your novels that you do um is the process in any way analogous to what Arzan is describing or it's something completely different because obviously your medium is words and you know there's a very thin line between nonsense and sense and you know Arzan can get away with a lot more I would imagine <laughs> than what what you can yeah i guess uh, what happens in the modern condition is that there is some kind of disenchantment mm-hmm. and so every artist wants to reenchant in some way you know this uh, you know the phrase disenchantment yes uh was popularized by weber yes where he says that this is what science does this is what yes. rationality does industrial revolution the revo- industrial revolution the bureaucratization of society yes disenchants us disenchants this world whereas the so called primitive human being found the whole universe very enchanting you know right so art uh, and that's one reason why you have so much fantasy literature yeah you know in the west because you know whether it's lord of the rings or now harry potter or all kinds of yes throne of uh, game, game of, of thrones, thrones. Yes, of so you want to reenchant your world in fact but i just wanted to pick up a couple of things that came up from yes, these please, discussions please. i mean what uh, what um, um, professor prasad dipendra ji was saying He was talking about this element of surprise. Yeah. You know the ancient Indian theoreticians also said that chamatkar was very important to art. Mm. Vismay, you know the Vismay. sense of wonderment, yes. you know, it's yes. one of the rasas actually. Mm-hmm. So that uh, basically a work of art is just like a leap of faith. There's also an aesthetic leap. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think Kant picked up the idea of the sublime because right. You see, when everything is getting mechanized, and the regime of reason is destroying that sense of enchantment, you want this transcendental, you know, something to take you up. And uh, you know what we heard earlier. What I was trying to say is, the Hindus were not concerned with beauty primarily. They were concerned with the nature of reality. Right. They wanted to find out what is real. Yeah. And so even the Buddhists were saying, what is real? What is unreal? So beauty became a kind of byproduct, and even. like the rasas you have bibhatsa revulsion yes. so rasa or poetic delight or relish can come from ugly things also yes. and this is where we sort of hook up with modernity where you yes. break the form cubism abstractism 
abstract impressionism, ab- That's abstract right. e- expressionism. That's You're right. breaking the form completely and then something else is coming back. So in literature also we see that. And for example, Eros. Oh, so Beckett versus... Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. See, Beckett, all versus the Versus Joyce in a sense. Yeah. They are pushing the limits of language. language. Yes. Because language is breaking down, you know. Yeah. And then it's going into a silent scream at times like Monk's Stream, that wonderful painting, Scream, which is, you know, like the yes. horror of modernity, you know, maybe yes. of a nuclear holocaust or whatever, or the great holocaust. So, Makran, this concept of truth, is it the same as authenticity? Is, is well, I think authenticity is much lower down the scale. And, and right. see, for, for Hindus, even truth seems to be like a sort of water done. But sat means something, it's not just literal truth. Right. I mean, is there a bottle on this table or not? Because right. that's why the Jains had Syadavad. Yes. You know, this Anekantavad, the kind of radical pluralism. Right. Something is true and untrue. Right. True and untrue at the same time. True but not, you know. Yes. So you have yes. so many possibilities. Yes. And I think that what I was trying to say is in modernity, there is a kind of degradation or a sort of... Um, Marketization uh, of everything. Yes. Exactly. In, in and that's sense. what I wanted to respond to when, you know what, in a sense, what Arzad finds in, in these rap forms is a kind of aura. See, Walter Benjamin talks about the, you know, age of mechanical reproduction, where yes. there's a loss of aura. Yes. So what we're doing here is we go to a scrapyard and in broken Re-enchant. down pieces, you see aura there. Yeah. Yeah. And you in, know, in a sense, it's an archaeological so, piece because is. there's so much of history it encoded is. in there. And, yeah. um, and, and another interesting thing, what happens is when you're going through these scrap pieces, you know, yeah. and I find that sometimes for a sculpture, just very uncannily, the pieces that I require for that sculpture come from the same machine. So he says, I call it one big family reunion. Right? So all <laughs> of them are you know, coming together. It's reassembly. You know, it's absolutely reassembly. Reincarnation. It's reincarnation. From scrap to art is a form of reincarnation. Yes. You're yes. reassembling those same pieces, you know. Right. And I think that's where, you know, what's happening is this kind of convergence between different art forms. So people who sort of are purveyors of words. See, they are also looking at a degradation of language and then they have to do something to language. Like the Sanskrit rhetoricians called it Vakrokti. Vakrokti mm-hmm. means a crooked language. Right. Where you are highlighting, foregrounding through crookedness, you know. Because the flatness or the ornamentation of Alankara is no good. It's like after Baroque and mannerism, you want to break everything down, you know. But Makaran, let me ask you, is this, how, how technical is the process of let's say, finding or creating beauty versus being intuitive. I mean, how much of it is just creative reason that an artist who is accomplished can do better than others? And how much, I mean, is there a playbook literally which... which Well, I think that, uh, you know, both the conventional and modern answers are similar there, which is you need training, you need to understand the language of the arts. Mm -hmm. Without that, you cannot bring things together, even if it's mathematics, whatever Mm -hmm. it is. And then you need that intuitive kind of flair or that push. And that's why in Shilpa Shastra, see, even today, it's very interesting that traditional forms are not considered innovative. But there's yeah. very subtle innovation. Like you take the Buddhist tankhas, everything is to scale. Even the yes. tilt of the green tara, yes. everything is almost mathematical. The proportions. Right. Uh, but there is very subtle innovation. There are schools within that. Right. And in the modern period, you dispense with all of that. But mm-hmm. like jazz, there are, you know, repetitions, you know, there are patterns, there is innovation. 
So I think we so you need a pattern uh, to even break it. Exactly. I right. think I think freedom from structure, which we aspire for, right. cannot come without some very very uh, sort of uh, rigorous sense of structure. So there's always a play, as he said. And Derrida has a wonderful essay, mm-hmm. "Structure, Sign, and Play in the Human Sciences," yes, of course. You know, yeah. where he's basically talking about that that you want to decenter the center, but that decentering. Is a very Need the compl- center. Yeah, is a very complicated process because it creates pseudo centers. Yes. So Levi Strauss talks about bricolage. Yes. Uh, and 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 Derrida, I think he's a, he's a theologian. He talks about deconstruction, the deconstructive angel. Yeah. It's apocalyptic. Yes. It's like a second coming, you know. Yes. 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 How much of um, um, and Yaron, on this maybe I'll go to you. How much of this is a process of for example in the modern age and you know we've been speaking of modernity for a while and you know this entire reconciliation of sensual and rational thoughts is 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 art more relevant less relevant or is is art having to redefine itself constantly what do you think well if you allow me to answer it link into what just yes, uh, said about the need to use the intuition or yeah in a way to me as a intuition could suggest going maybe deeper than the rationality. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we follow the ancient school uh, in India, speaking about uh, manas as mental, and then you have the higher than that, there's Bodhi, and Bodhi could understand also as a yes, yes. intuition. Uh, there's a wonderful artist which, which I, I admire. Uh, he's a photographer. Mm-hmm. His name is Enrique Tiaberson. Mm-hmm. He died, I think, uh, 10 years ago or mm-hmm. a bit more. Uh, my own teacher for philosopher is also for philosophy in Israel is also a photographer. Wow! And uh, well, he was in India recently also with uh, some exhibition, etc. And uh, Enrique Tiaberson, uh, I think maybe number one is uh, one of the names that you will uh, bring up uh, to to define uh, a photographer. Mm. Uh, he's one of those who initiated the Magnum Agency, and uh, he's an artist. And uh, there is a, f- uh, a photography of him that he took, I'm, I'm not so sure exactly when, but mm-hmm. around the 50s, 40s, mm-hmm. 50s. Mm-hmm. And uh, if I'm not wrong, it will be uh, ranked as the photography of... Uh, what is that photograph about? What does it capture? Well, I don't remember the name. But sure, you, sure. Uh, it is... Uh, Enrico Everson was famous for the decisive moment. It is a moment that you capture something that, that happened a second before, a second after, it's not there. So you can say the element of surprise, uh, uh, the sense of wonder, there is but there. Who surprises that, Yaron? Is that, is that a moment in the life of the object or the subject? Both. Let, let me just complete the story. Sure. Uh, because I think it will uh, suggest sure. something. Sure. So there is one photo, and, and those are the days where you don't have the digital. So you can't take hundreds of photos, but True. you take one yes. out of 30, and mm. that's it. Mm. 30, yes. 36 mm. max. And it's a very famous photo, photography where you see um, pools of water, mm-hmm. and you see a person, there, there's a reflection of bicycles, there's a really beautiful uh, geometry there and aesthetic, and you see a person just flying in the air. So he's just oh. <laughs> jumping above the pool mm. uh, and both of his feet are in the air and you see just the shadow of the person. Mm-hmm. Uh, just Google Enrico mm-hmm. Tiaberson, mm-hmm. you'll find it. Sure. And for years, there was a question, how did he took it? Mm. What exactly, because that's exactly the question. Does he need some kind of preparation? Is it a mathematical calculation of how many seconds will take and then yeah. he take the click? Yeah. And he never answered. 
And the last interview that he uh, gave in his life, mm-hmm. and I think you also can find it in YouTube. Sure. So it's there. Uh, some journalist asked him, and asked him about this picture. And the answer that Henri Cartier person uh, told him uh, shocked him. He said, you know, I didn't plan it. It was, the, the image itself was behind the fence. The fence is made of uh, wood, so you mm. can't see anything. In the fence, there is a hole. All I did, I, I put my camera. Mm-hmm. I didn't even look. And I clicked. <laughs> and I didn't know. I just, after when I developed it, I saw. So the journalist was in shock. Yes, you know, right. it's like uh, finding the grail. And uh, saying, ah, so you, you, you mean to say that it's all a matter of luck. You were lucky. And Enrique Yerberson looked at him and say, yes, but you need to learn to be lucky. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> true. And that's all he's teaching about. True. true. Exactly. True. So, the harder they work, harder they work, to be the luckier you get. How to, yes. how to catch those uh, special, unique moments yes. that, that full with surprise, that full, yes. full with beauty. And, uh, and that's, well, that, that's a modern person who speaks about the uh, intuitive way of uh, doing art. Right. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Just, just to add to what yeah, he said yeah. about getting lucky, you know, mm-hmm. when to get lucky, how, how do you get lucky? It looks like you've been lucky I, before. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I do these large pieces, okay? So, right. so I'm talking about 27 foot sculpture that I did mm-hmm. and I, I balance them on one toe. I love balancing them, okay? So they right. seem to be jumping out. But then I do these visual structures within. Now, if I'm working on such a big piece, I have welders with me. I have some helpers with me who are working right. on the crane from above and all that. Right. And of course, I make the piece first with multiple supports. Yeah. Then slowly, once I find that aesthetically I've achieved what I want, everything, I start doing my structure to make it stand on its own. I have to do that. I, right. I, I don't calculate it physically, but visually I can know. You know center of gravity, etc., etc. Et right. And I started putting one member after the other one member. Okay, fine. I was satisfied. Then I said, okay, fine. Now remove the supports one by one. So they removed one, second, third, fourth, and it stood. Hmm. And the older worker said, you're damn lucky, sir. It's standing. <laughs> Same thing as it's not luck. It's all calculated, you know. You think, sir, I bought lucky. It's standing at least. <laughs> Speaking of from uh, yeah. André Cartier-Bresson, I mean, he came to India in 1950. Mm-hmm. And he photographed both Raman Maharishi mm-hmm. and Shorobindo just oh. before they died. Both right. of them died in 1950. Probably photograph Gandhi also, if I'm not mistaken. Well, he's the, he's the last uh, journalist, it is said, to meet uh, Gandhi before, Gandhiji mm. before he died. Oh, exactly. Okay. But okay. his photos, again, of uh, Raman Maharishi are, and even Aurobindo, but especially the Maharishi, are so amazing. Because mm. he had cancer, you know, Ramana had yes. cancer at that time, he was yes. dying. Yes. And if you want to understand Karuna Rasa, that yeah. whole sense of compassion, compassion. you yeah. should see those pictures of uh, the dying Ramana. And the eyes reflect like pools, very deep pools of compassion. Yeah. So that moment, it's almost like the eye of God captured that thing in flight. That, yes. Uh, yes. So, you know, that's like linked to this idea of Chamatkara. But also that leap. Intuition is a leap. Yeah. So, you know, reason is a ground. And then intuition is taking off from there. Yeah. And Aurobindo has a wonderful poem called Thought the Paraclete. Mm-hmm. See, the paraclete is a theological word. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's, uh, it's a word for the Holy Spirit in the Christian trinity. Mm-hmm. So God the Father, God the Son, and God you that Holy Ghost. That Holy yeah. Ghost leads you. I mean, so this thought 
or the rationality of the mind is like someone who takes you to Manonmaya Kosha and then Vijnanamaya. And then in this poem, you see it's a journey. Mm-hmm. So you start on solid ground, then it takes you higher and higher and higher. And then at the end, thought disappears. Right. So thought is a helper, you see, and then you've got to leave it behind. What are you left with? Intuition. Well, you're left with uh, the whole idea if you li- read Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Yes, of course. <laughs> and then he says, where is, where is quality? Yeah. And he says, uh, it's not Aristotelian. It's not yes. the subject-object yeah. duality. Correct. And, you know, you say, where is beauty? Is that a mind independent? Yeah, so it's half received, half perceived. Yes. So Persik says quality happens when the subject, that is the viewer and the object, they kind of go into some merged state where it's it's neither objective. So beauty is neither objective, nor is it entirely subjective. Is that the threshold between beauty and sublime as well? Yeah. Because, you know, that's what Yeats says when he says the dancer becomes the dance. Yes. And you can add that even the viewer becomes the dance. Right. You know, that is that, that, uh, you know, the the ground of being is where the object, the subject and the experience of viewing or dancing. Somehow the same. Somehow there is a kind of shimmering merger. Yes. And when that moment passes, everybody's back in their own uh, states. Right. Uh, and of course, if you're a romantic, you'll say, like with Keats's yes. Ode to a Nightingale, that you, the poet starts on the ground level, then he goes with this bird high up in the air, mm. but there it can't be sustained, so he comes down, but then he doesn't come back to the earth with a thud, yes. but the third state is somewhere above the that. Hovering between the two, that's, exactly. that's, the, that's, so the, that's the gain of art. Art somehow takes you a little bit higher. So after you see Arzan's sculpture, you feel a little bit higher than, yes. you know, just... It changes you. Changes. changes you in some form. It changes the perceiver along with... So there's no mind-independent beauty, fundamentally, from an Indian perspective. Right. And Tagore has a fantastic, wonderful exchange with Einstein. Mm-hmm. And Tagore asks Einstein, he says that, uh, would your laws of, you know, physics and laws of relativity and the universe be what they are if there's nobody to perceive them. Yeah. And Einstein says, yes, they will. And Tagore says, somehow I don't agree. Yeah. <laughs> he, because the act of perception, and this is before quantum in a way. Yeah, before, you know, before Heisenberg, principle Heisenberg. Just before Heisenberg right. or just after. Heisenberg is in 1929, I think. That's right, 27, Tagore's 29. conversation is 31, or around 31, 32, 33, yeah. around that time with uh, Einstein. He says, no, the act of the viewer, the, somebody apprehending this universe, changes the universe. A universe without any subject would be a cold and dead and lifeless universe. But Dipendra, with, would you say the same about mathematics? Is is will, no, will mathematical? I, think, uh, I would go with. Uh, I think what Einstein uh, was uh, <laughs> uh, suggesting. I think that is uh, what most scientists would like to think that what they do is independent of uh, human experience and uh, somehow even if uh, humans were not there somehow the laws of physics you know universal law of gravitation or theory of relativity or uh, 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 Einstein's equation about uh, how the universe uh, is curved I think somehow 
obviously uh, much of science age is driven by thought experiments but uh, then one uh, likes to propose that these laws uh, are somehow independent of human experience and even if we were not there or even if we were i mean somehow that is the uh, great uh, beauty about uh, physical laws that they are ac- applicable to situations which we will never reach yes somehow they are valid in the infinite universe and they are also valid at the sub-atomic. very subatomic level as you know the discovery of the higgs boson etc Uh, so depends on for example when you do mathematics and number theory and clearly you're operating in a territory that none of us will understand but if you are a regular person as well at the same time and when you come up with something which is intuitively just repulsive just doesn't make sense but mathematically or technically it's correct is is there a process of reconciling the two i mean something which for example i mean there's so many discoveries in the field of science which intuitively just seem completely wrong but are technically correct and are proven to be so later Have i think been... one has to at some point recalibrate one's uh, thoughts about how the physical reality should be so i think if something does not is not agreeable to what we thought before mm-hmm. and something seems to suggest that no this is uh, the reality and we have to live with it mm-hmm. i think the human mind adopts itself mm-hmm. and then uh, somehow the, this fact becomes part of uh, human experience and uh, somehow i think theory of relativity was also a theory which was maybe against uh, common human Most conventions ex- yes uh, common uh, experience and that is why it took more time for it to come up but once it is there uh, uh, i think uh, a human uh, experience somehow includes it as part of uh, our knowledge or our wisdom and uh, somehow at that point it may have uh, uh, s- s- some surprise or uh, even repulsion and uh, you know there is this uh, difference between people who are you know like older generation they don't like ideas which they have been uh, they have grown up with yeah. but you know a younger person may come up with a very radically new idea which will have uh, difficulty getting accepted in the scientific community for a while but uh, eventually if the idea is what is borne out by sci- i mean scientific experiment and uh, is the correct one i think uh, scientific community embraces it and i think that then for the next generation i think that becomes like uh, the truth how much how much of this entire process in its question addressed to all in a sense is dialogue versus monologue how, how much of your number theory theorem proving and all of that is is you speaking with your body of your own knowledge versus um, no i think there is um, i think um, much of uh, scientific activity is a individual effort mm-hmm. but eventually for it 
to be accepted by the scientific community you must explain it to others in the way they can reason it out yeah. you cannot just say that you know i dreamt it and it is true and that's it somehow one cannot take this view point that uh, this came to you in your dream and this is what it should be i mean uh, somehow but have there been moments when you've gotten to the proof before you know the proof you know the outcome no, before no i mean somehow you I may mean, you, have, you have a hunch famous. you may have a hunch or you may guess uh, what should be the correct path but you know eventually in sciences uh, uh, either you must do an experiment to justify your intuition or in mathematics also you must do a slightly different kind of experiment to say that you know the scientific prediction that you want to make is on good footing and then only people will take you seriously and then only others will also kind of uh, go along and work on your i think uh, so professor prasad for example yes. dependent i mean you have gross prasad conjecture so conjecture um yeah How, so you see that's what so i think the this is what one would say you know in any sciences or i think more in sciences maybe we may have an intuition about how the world works mm-hmm. or how a scientific theory may work or mm-hmm. how a mathematical theorem might apply to a certain situation so is there an element of guesswork yes there is an element of guesswork but that guesswork is based on uh, doing some experiments mm-hmm. you know like uh, pythagoras theorem you know i mean it's one of the primitive examples of a very yes. important mathematical theorem and uh, one might say that uh, before the theorem is actually discovered you know a mathematician will uh, also do some Suspect thought experiment yes. thought experiment that you know it looks reasonable to to explore further sort of yeah thing. explore mm-hmm. further to propose this so what does pythagoras know before he knows pythagoras theorem you know what i mean no i mean uh, you see the pythagoras theorem is either about uh, length of uh, 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 length of sides of a, of a triangle. triangle so the notion of length and of the area etc but there must have been a moment in time when it became crystallized in pythagoras's own mind yeah and before so, that what was in what was it in his mind so it is likely that even for pythagoras theorem uh, maybe he thought that this is what it should be and then uh, it took him some more months or in some cases some more years right. for him to come up with a proof i mean uh, this happens very often in uh, mathematics right. that you right. know i mean uh, uh, uh there is a very famous uh, mathematician gauss from the 19th carl frederick gauss, uh, uh, gauss. Uh, he anticipated many developments in number theory and geometry and uh, uh, he proposed various conjectures and one of the famous things uh, 
was about the distribution of primes yes uh, how do you know primes are very random objects you know 2 3 5 7 11 11 then 13 then 17 then after that 19 23 and then maybe 29 so it's a very random process and uh, young gauss uh, conjectured how they should grow how they could be distributed how they could be distributed the famous riemann hypothesis yes so there is also data. famous riemann hypothesis yeah. about <laughs> it but uh, what i'm saying is that gauss uh, proposed a very precise conjecture about the distribution of primes and that was proved uh, almost 100 years later yeah yeah that was uh, uh, almost 100 years later so there is obviously an element of language um and for intuition to become yeah i think language um, i mean to the extent it plays a role even to the extent that without the language i think one is not able to express uh, one cannot even think you cannot think so yes. what hypothesis you know, <laughs> <I> think <laughs> yes so what is yes. no, it's very interesting because i was thinking while listening to dipendra that uh, You know, there's a wonderful, uh, many wonderful books on Ramanujan. Yes, yes, yes of the course. Indian mathematician. Yes, no, of course. Kind of Very great. Philosophy. Yes. And uh, you see his discovery by Hardy. Everything is known, so to speak. Yes. I mean, yes. not everything is known. I'm saying the legend is known. Yes. But uh, you know, he has been. kind of inspirational figure for all kinds of people. Yeah. And one very important writer who picked him up is Raja Rao. Yes, of course. So in the chess master and his moves, the main character is a man called Shivaram Shastri, mm-hmm. who is modeled on Ramanujan, and he gets these numbers from this goddess Namakkal, you know. Yes. And uh, I actually know of a very good mathematician who is also professor of humanities at Rochester, mm-hmm. and uh, you know people don't talk about these things. So once uh, I just we were talking about meditation. and he said that uh, my form of meditation is uh, very different from what other people do so mm-hmm. i coaxed it out of him so he said every day when i sit down for meditation i contemplate a number mm-hmm. a number comes to him let's say 3 yes so he spends half an hour just thinking about that number 3 Mm-hmm. and he i've seen some of the things he has written it's just incredible i mean the just the thoughts about three mm-hmm. you know i mean some stupid things you can think of right away through association you of know course. three sides of a triangle yeah something murti. something three murti or three, uh, three dimensionality or or the trinity three stooges three stooges <laughs> all kinds <laughs> but then you know something happens and he says that according to him he says that he begins to find the inner significance of that number somehow i couldn't fully understand it right. and the number dissolves the number dissolves and something happens i mean i have not i tried and it didn't happen which is again the advaita something i don't know what it way. is right. but i tried to do it with words and i tell you like words sometimes tell me things like mm-hmm. scraps See, I was before this. I was thinking about your topic, and mm-hmm. you know the Greek word mm-hmm. for uh, beauty is mm-hmm. kalon, mm-hmm. and I was just thinking about it, and mm-hmm. it's like kala. Yeah, of course. 
Now I haven't researched it because yeah. I don't want to. <laughs> no, because it is. See, there is, I don't want to because there is a lot there of etymology. But sometimes yes. etymology is also wrong. They it's don't understand. Just, yeah. Sometimes they it's, don't understand. Starts it. with the assumption that it's yeah. But at times it's true. It's true. You know, for example, like you take the word door mm. and dwar. They are the same word. I mean, etymology will prove it because it's Indo. See, this this is the archetypes in a form. Archetype. Archetypes, but it's also Indo Indo European languages. You know, yes. they have the roots are the same. But sometimes you don't go to a dictionary. You contemplate. You think deeply, and you get the same you word which it. anyway exists. You get it, and that's know? the process of thinking when you're writing a poetry. The word exactly. But I'm so. saying that some. What I'm only saying is that there, we have been talking about, say, you know, intuitional. And I'm saying that, you know, there are all these things we know. Right, so to speak, but there is this the cornucopia of the unknown. You know, it's mm. like it's like a plenum. You know, there's it's bubbling all the time. You know, and mm. we're like plucking things because you're saying what before he knew the theorem. You know, yes. You know, it's full of stuff there. Yes, and we're just it's just a certain out. kaleidoscopic combination that just fits. No, it. we pluck out things from that. You see, it's there. It's like in the chidakash, things are bubbling. Yes. And the mind can just pick up something, you know, like I pick up this, you pick up that, he picks up something, you pick up something, you're picking up something. Cartier Bresson is picking up something. Yes. He's somewhere there. Yes. And it's infinite. It, it's inexhaustible. And even God can capture that on his camera for him. Yeah. It's in, see, see, I think it's inexhaustible potential. Yeah. And Nisargadatta talks about it. He says right. it's like Chidakash, Mahadakash, he has some of these terms. First. But some of that is a kind of inexhaustible plenum. Like uh, yeah. uh, and and you know that's the idea of the Hindu idea of the Purna, Purnamada, Purnamadam. Yes. And you remove you remove Purna from Purna, it is still Purna. And you yes. add it's you infinity. Know, it's the concept. It is, a, it is yes. like in a, that. In a way. In a way. Yeah, yeah. It is the concept. So, Arzan, when I mean, is do do you feel or think that you are working off the same archetypes as some other artists? You, you know, have have there been moments when you made something and it turns out to be something very similar to what something else someone else has made somewhere else, very far away? Very very rarely. I think it's happened twice so far since I started working. When I've made something and someone said, "Do you know someone's made this in Argentina somewhere similar sort of thing?" <laughs> <laughs> and I said, very, did you copy it from there? But then I was very lucky because he had made it after I made it. So <laughs> that, it, it just happens, you know, sometimes they say your thoughts cross, you know, sort of. Like, hey, just very lucky. He's very he's, lucky. He's lucky again. <laughs> <laughs> so, so basically, yes, it has happened twice or twice when, when your work suddenly looks like someone else's work. Mm -hmm. And of course, the, the 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 kind of work I do, I, I purposely try not to make it look like what there's any existing artwork because that's, that's what right. I try on. I love creating uh, new stuff, reinventing and all that. But yes, sometimes ideas do cross. Suddenly just three artists connect and, and, and you find that the works are very, very similar. You know, probably at the same time, they were think, thinking of the same thing, the same things are affecting them and it just comes out visually in the same form, you know. Right, it happens. right, right. Yaron, what does philosophy have to say about archetypes? Are there... Are there common forms? Is, is there such a thing as platonic forms? I mean, obviously, it's, it's a stupid question in a sense. But, no. Uh, well, we say when philosophy have to say something about something, that, that's, that's not an issue. Of course, yeah, uh, yeah. there will be. Uh, well, the name Pythagoras was mentioned, and uh, it is said that he was the first one to use in the name uh, philosopher. Of course. That when, he influenced uh, Socrates even, in a way. When people refer, we need to remember that that the school of Pythagoras was not just a school 
of mathematics. As, as mathematics as we understand today. Yes. yes. Mathematicoi was a certain level within the school. There was the Akosmotikoi, there was the Novice. Is, those are names that we're familiar right. from the right. school, which, if I'm not wrong, was said to be named the museum, mm-hmm. uh, which means the place of the muse. So you go to the museum. This, right. is, by the way, is a good way to refer to museum. When you go to the museum, you're supposed to be inspired. So yes. if not, you should ask for the money back. <laughs> <laughs> and it is Pythagoras also that says, uh, well, it's a famous quote. I don't know if he really said it, but that's what we refer to him, that uh, God is the greatest mathematician. So yes. I'm, if you follow that line, then obviously Pythagoras didn't think that he's just inventing things, but he's, he uh, as you mentioned, uh, he's trying to, 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 to receive things, what, what already exists. Now, if you follow the idea that mathematics will follow later with uh, shape, Mm-hmm. what we call from the Arupa to the Rupa. Yes. Um, and if we speak about shape and if the origin of it is mathematics, if mathematics is related to God, if I follow the ideas of Pythagoras and many others, then, then it's obviously we can correlate it also to beauty. So yeah, yeah. Maybe beauty is not, and maybe I agree, maybe beauty is not the, the aim, but it's certainly a, one of the best and practical uh, yes. ways to, to follow truth and beauty and, uh, sorry, truth and, and justice and Yes. And maybe interact with what we call uh, intuition, knowing yourself. We right. mentioned so many different things that uh, each one we can discuss yes. for uh, yes. hours. So but in a sense, justice is beautiful, beautiful is just. And uh, Well, go today to the court and say to the judge, you know, your sentence is not so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what will happen to you. But uh, yeah, yeah it, it's very interesting to follow these ideas because they take you very, very deep. Right. Uh, see, what is the law of karma in the Hindu philosophy? Yeah. Is not is it not justice? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the karma is a divine. It's not something yes. that we invent. It's not a calculation. It's an infinite regress of justice, in a sense. Right. Yes, of course. And of it, course. we might say even beautiful. Yes. Why not? Yes. Going back to both these ideas, I think Occam's razor. Yes. Is a kind Keep of. Keep it simple, uh, stupid. Uh, yeah, but it's a kind of. Uh, Understanding of beauty as a, you know, the most, uh, the most simple, elegant way of expressing a big truth. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and then when we come to, to what Yaron was saying, you know, I was, uh, you know, very struck by that. Because when you think about the original meaning of the word aesthetics, yes. it has to do with the senses. The realm of the sensual, yes, the sensual right? Yes. And when you see Schiller's letters on poetry following yeah. from Kant, yeah. I mean, the basic thing was that aesthetics was a training of the senses so that if your senses are trained, and that's why you have aesthetic education, you would do no harm. You would not be evil. Yes. Of course, the Nazis disproved it because some <laughs> of those Nazis were very... Uh, yeah, they yes. would listen to Mozart and then go and torture somebody, you know, I mean, so... Wagner, I mean, Wagner, Wagner of course, uh, yeah. exactly. So, I mean, it doesn't matter if they were totally disproved. But even today, if you think about, uh, I mean, something very interesting that uh, Gatri Spivak said, I mean, she's got a book on aesthetic education, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I find something she said very interesting prior to that when she talked about during the Tagore uh, you know, centenary two, three years right. ago. Right. Um, uh, what she said was that uh, when she was a student at Lady Brabon College in Kolkata, mm-hmm. all the middle class girls sang Tagore songs, you know, right. Ravindra Shangeet. Yes. Why? But you see, it, it's, a, it's a training of the emotions. And that is what Bollywood also does. 
it teaches you how to laugh and weep and you know if you listen to old talat mahmood songs etc so i mean this training of the senses means how to feel and that's why you see at a certain point in europe this became very important and jane austen wrote a book yeah. sense and sensibility yes so you should you be sen- you should you have sensibility which means that when you see a wounded puppy you start crying when when the boy hunts the bird the girl cries all yeah. should be sensible rational you know yeah and eventually the answer she comes to in a novel like pride and prejudice or emma the more mature uh, novel was emma yes. of course is that you need both yeah. you can't just be flowing with your sentiments so that you become you know a kind of sniveling uh, you know whatever impractical Makran, how much of this is social as opposed to being individually realizable or psychological yeah you can see imitation of the effect you know the yeah, spinoza effect. concept and all yeah that. you yeah. can see that but you know if you think about goethe's great book you know the sorrows of young werther yeah. you know it's the beginning of the romantic revolution romanticism where mm. again you see you're turning from the regime of reason mm-hmm. because somehow you know it's like saying look this is it's the truth of the heart like even today you know you read agony aunts you know yes. and they say don't think see how you feel about this guy do you feel comfortable someone <laughs> says i'm very conflicted the, you know so yes. what i'm really trying to say is that, see all of these things are hitting at some important truth which has to do with our discussion yes which is that the realm of aesthetics yes is so important yeah because that is how you feel your way through life you can't simply think, think your, your way, way through, through life so cart yeah decart's to journey to kant in a way that's right yeah, yeah. you see you, so that is why we see cartesian is very sterile at one level yeah. and now when we're dealing with post human theories yes the basic thing people are saying is that consciousness cannot be melted and transferred to another body there's a recent movie about that you see with this johnny depp yeah, where yeah, they yeah. made they put him into and the other the, the people who write about this this you can't do it because like donna harrow and others are saying consciousness is neurological yes. it's not just mental yes. it's not you download somebody's brain memory it's, memory it's memory not just chip. memory <laughs> it's not just memory you know yes. so you see that that it's it, that neurological uh that's an emergent where, property of a whole so then the yeah. sensation that's yes. where aesthetic comes in it's not merely um and, and and then that is why you say that uh, you know when you talk about some of these poets they say thought to him was a feeling what does that mean that means that the, he he's that poet is somehow is able to imbue that mental thing with a you know that is why eliot says about john dun this is a quotation in a way from you know mm-hmm. eliot's thinking of john dun who said that there is a dissociation of sensibility you know yeah and so he calls those metaphysical poets were poets before the dissociation takes place and it's like the two cultures of cp snow you know yes so you come course. back to that over mm-hmm. and over again and that's why aesthetics is important because somehow it integrates it integrates these different faculties and and you know i talked to push bhargav about some of this you know there's a continuous dialogue with scientists you know feynman and others have written about it that uh, you know culture i mean they see many modern scientists they don't have any use for religion but they have a lot of use for art because for them that so called spirit of spirituality or that is through art the aesthetic becomes a way to access the non or extra mental 
Like the Da Vinci is a great yeah. example, no? Yeah, yeah. And Einstein was also known to be a... Well, he had a lot of religious kind of uh, ideas, but he, he was also an artist. You, can't, you, you can say that, no? An artist, a philosopher. That's why they say music is closest to mathematics yeah, yeah. in some ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Arzan, how much of your work do you think needs a, needs a society for it to be comprehensible? Think. I mean, if, if we just left one of your scriptures and yep. uh, you know, some aliens landed on hmm. the planet 500 years later, would they find it beautiful even if all of us didn't found it beautiful today? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, think, I think, yes, uh, to an artist's response is very important. It is very important, yes. It, it, it is one thing that you keep on creating what you feel like, you make it and all that. But I feel you also can't be that insensitive to say that to hell with it. I'll put all this out. And even if it's ugly, let the people, you know, sort of have a look at it. The, the response of the people. But it's possible it's, to be a reclusive artist. It's not it possible, possible to be yes, a reclusive it is, mathematician, it is, is it? It is possible, yes. I, I think that is, I think depends on each individual as to what he wants to select. Whether uh, uh, There are reclusive artists. There are some artists who I know who have not shown their work out in the public galleries for the past 15 years. Yeah. <laughs> and they still have their own two, three collectors who come to them and they only show it to them and all that. And somehow I feel that they're, they're keeping their genius away from the people. Why, why should it be that? I, I, I feel it should be out in the open. In fact, I prophesize a lot of work out in the open, a public art and all that. You're doing right. the Kalagora Festival and all that. I, I love art being out in the open. Get as much responses as possible from the public. I, I've kept my stuff sometimes at VT Station. For, for yeah. people who go in and out, they never see art. They never step into a gallery. But they come and they pass the weirdest comments. But at least they're having a look at that. And there's, there's something which is happening to them. You know, they know what, yes. yes. There's something which is happening. So next time they see something in a magazine, they'll connect. Okay, fine. You know, this is like something what I've seen. So I think let's just close with the concept of boredom. And we, we've spoken about beautiful, but does there come a time in mathematics or literature or poetry or art uh, where... You wrote something several years ago. You made something several years ago. Dipendra, uh, you did some mathematics 20 years ago. And it's boring today. And when you say something is boring, what is that from each one of your perspectives? I think the most obvious sense people talk about boring is that they have already seen this so many times. So lack of novelty. Yeah, lack of Lack novelty. of surprise, yes. that thing which you were teasing yes. out in the context. Yeah, lack of novelty. I mean... Uh, uh, if I have heard a lecture and if I'm hearing it again, I will certainly be bored. If I see a film and if I go to see it again, I will certainly not be as excited second time. I mean, uh, for most cases, I would be bored. In some cases, uh, I may have missed out on some subtle points True. which I may concentrate this time. Yeah. So I think uh, only because I have missed some parts I'm still excited to see the film second time because the boredom is uh, about repetition. So something which I have fully understood, if the plot I have understood, I have uh, understood the music, then I think I, I, I... So when there's nothing left to be understood, it's boring. Yeah, I mean, to my mind, I think uh, novelty is what drives us uh, with excitement and with... Uh, with a drive. What would you say, Makrand? When, when, when does a work of literature, for example, get boring or 
obviously there's that famous maxim that a thing of beauty is joy forever <laughs> yeah that is you know my, i think that i'm i'm a critic of modernity i consider myself a modern person but right. i think this drive for novelty is one of the curses of modernity mm-hmm. because life is mechanized and routinized so there's a thirst for novelty yeah and the thirst for novelty leads to in art to not just actually fruitful experimentation but just experimentation for the sake of experimentation yeah, yeah and just sensationalism and how uh, you know what jameson talks about in the postmodern condition how art has lost depth it's become flat right like yeah. andy warhol's uh, you know marilyn monroe uh, marilyn monroe as opposed to or shoes you know as or, as of or coca cola cans as opposed to uh, van gogh's shoes where which is full of texture density historicity so i think that you know traditional people led uh, lives which were more or less repetitive but i think they were more joyous mm-hmm. and i think therefore i would want to against like a balance that i mean routinized repetitive artistry would be awful but at the same time novelty for the sake of novelty is also soul killing so, so arzan if there were like 200 of your sculptures your favorite ones um, all around ones? bombay yeah is that a good thing or a bad no i don't think so it'll be very far <laughs> 200 <laughs> same ones i would hate to see them myself you know? <laughs> but but you know yeah, uh, yeah. what he spoke about you know like like if he looks back and he f- sees the same thing he finds it boring like if i also go back and sometimes i see the work i say why did i do this and all that but i think also that's an important process because it it, it that is what sort of at that point in time this yes, was new was needed so yes. of True. course uh, So you know so I think it was a very necessary step to reach yes. where you are uh, yeah. today you know I I think that is important you know Excellent thank you so much for your time it's been a pleasure speaking to all of you and um, we hope to see you again soon thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you, thank you. 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 thank you